everyone. Welcome back to the Let's Talk podcast with me and David. And today we're going to be covering 1960s Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins. So, David, what do you think of Psycho, just right out of the gate? Psycho, to me, is one of the most important films ever made, especially for the horror genre. For me, this is the godfather of horror movies. This is the first modern horror movie. I think that every horror movie that's come out since owes it that to Psycho. Psycho did a lot of firsts for us, uh, besides being the first movie to ever show a toilet flushing, but like to do what they did in the middle of the movie by switching us with the lead, who we always thought the lead of the mm-hmm. movie was going to be, and then just turning it on its head, killing them off. And we're talking about Janet Lee here with, again, one of the most famous scenes in horror history, the shower scene, uh, mm-hmm. showing just a lot of stuff in 1960, very ahead of its time, and having Alfred Hitchcock be the director, really. I mean, can you get a better director than Alfred Hitchcock in 1960? I don't think so. And the weird thing about it is, is that Hitchcock, in a lot of ways, was, he was making larger movies than Sago. Um, by the late 50s. Yes. This was a small movie for him. This was almost like him taking a step back. However, he, he was pushing an awful lot of boundaries at Sago. Uh, he was pushing the censors. He was pushing the form forward, um, especially for horror movies. I mean, I would say up to this point that there was not a movie that made like Sago up until 1960. No, and it's weird. This came out the same year as Peeping Tom, which is also a movie mm-hmm. that's kind of a little bit of ahead of its time, but just nothing like Psycho, like seeing blood go down the drain. And I don't know, I'm, you've mm-hmm. told me this before, and I kind of, I'm able to like kind of I'm do the same thing as you, where I can kind of put myself in like what people were trying to think like in 1960. And I try and think of like what it was like going to the theater and seeing yeah. Psycho, especially since you've seen the trailer where it's just Alfred Hitchcock yeah. walking around the hotel, the land. And, you know, you don't get to see really, like, what the movie is going to be. And he's setting it up for you. And the way he just tells the story. And in this house, the most dire, horrible events took place. And, like, it gets yeah. you. I just can't imagine, like, being sold on that by, like, oh, man, what is this movie going to be? And then going to actually see it in the theater in 1960. I, I just honestly, I can't imagine what that was like. Like, just how people were seeing that. Yeah, that trailer is a gem on its own. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a prom- promotional um, tour to use and doing a tour of the Bates Motel and the mansion. And as you say, not knowing what anything's about. And did you notice at the end of that trailer who was in the shower? <laughs> so it's it's Vera Mays. Oh, is it? Yeah. Who do you think it was? Janet Lee? Yeah, it was Janet Lee's the original one in the shot. Oh, okay. So they're kind of teasing a little bit about what the movie is going to be, but not giving yeah. anything away. Which So they're basically putting Vera Mays in the shot, right? Yeah. When you're watching when the movie, when you're watching the things, I mean, you're in the movies back then, you know, you think Janet Lee's the star. Yes. She's, you know, she's going to be in it from the start to the finish. She stars in this Alfred Hitchcock movie, Seiko, one that runs about. And you see the name Vera Mays come up. So if you've seen the trailer, you think, oh, the bad thing's going to happen to Vera Mays. Exactly. They totally mislead you. And then even the movie, when it starts, it just, it doesn't feel like, because it's, a, you know, the movie when it came out in the 1960s, the way they're setting it up, it's like when horror movies get to like the 1980s and even like maybe in the 1970s, you might kind of have like a cold open but to get the crowd invested in the horror. But they're not doing that in this movie. They're showing her going to work and it kind of seems like it might be like a crime film like a girl on yes. the run like a thief like like 
you know, do you have sympathy for her in the beginning of this movie, Janet Lee? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. First of all, what you're saying about how it starts and then it just switches. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching the making of the game um, during the week, and that is actually all down to the screenwriter, Joseph Stefano, um, because I have read the book Sego. Um, I've read it twice. I read it years ago, about 20 odd years ago, and then I read it again about four or five years ago again. It kind of starts off with Norman's thoughts and him in the motel, and then it's raining outside and a car pulls up, and it's John Lee's character, and she's called Mary in the book. <laughs> but they couldn't call her Mary in the film because there was actually a Mary Crane in the same area where either they filmed or the film was set and they had to change it because that so they changed it to Martin. <laughs> yeah. And then each chapter kind of like flips between Norman and Marion, what she's thinking, and back back and forward. So it kind of starts off with like Norman's door at the very start. And even in the book, it's all this big reveal about who's the mother, you know, and he's having conversations with the mother throughout it. And, you know, so it, it, even in the book, it's, it's kept that she's alive, you know, that you don't find it at the end. It's just actually dead and he's killed her, from, from what I can remember. So it was Joseph Stefano who said that uh, he devised this idea that it would start off just showing you about Marion and basically halfway through the film you think it's about her stealing this money and then she's killed and in his words he says it's not about then you realise the film's not about her it's about him Norman Bates and that's why the film's kind of like in those two parts of her and then Norman and that was designed in a way that your sympathy would switch from Marion Norman, and you would be even more shocked when you find out that Norman's the killer. Yeah. And the reason you're saying that I have sympathy for Marion, um, I suppose in a lot of ways I do, because there's layers in this film of she's around 30 or in her 30s, she's not married, and for back then, did not be married or have kids. <laughs> I have to be careful, I say, it's almost seen as if your time's running out. You know, there wasn't very many people back in those days who were in their thirties and not married and had kids. It was viewed at that time as sad, almost like like you had an even like um I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Night of the Hunter with Robert Mitchum. No. Um in that movie he's killing widows. So basically right. her husband the one lead woman, her husband um well he got killed basically he got the death penalty so anyway people in town the other women in town are like oh when are you going to settle down again you need a man like you know like a woman wasn't seen as somebody who should be alone and in this movie it's like yeah she's alone she's still single and she's uh seeing a married man in the beginning of the movie so like that's why i was wondering if you had sympathy because there and you know then she steals the money from her boss and even though the guy she steals from he's a schmuck anyway but, like, you know, they're kind of setting her up as, you know, like, her morals aren't the best, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah, I actually think that she's a, deep down, she's a good person because mm-hmm. um, the backstory is is that um, her and her sister um, are orphans and she had to leave college to raise the sister. So the sister could go to college and she's working to look after them. As you say, she finds herself in her 30s. And she's with this man, and especially back in those days, the fact that that man was still married, they had to have their affair in secret. You know, I'm saying affair, he's separated, he's trying to get divorced. Yeah. Even for him, her to be going with a man who's still legally married, that was frowned upon. They can even have dinner, but respectably. And the next thing is, is that this guy comes in, not even her boss. Is it the oil tycoon? I can't remember his name now. 
I don't remember what his name was. He comes in with the uh, guy who's going to put the $40,000 in their safe in the building. And he's it, he's making little comments like about like, oh, I wouldn't carry enough money around unless I was able to lose it. Like essentially like it was not a big deal yeah. to him if he lost this money. And not only that, he's bringing, what, what, what's he doing with the money? He's coming in and he's putting the money in because he's buying a property. Mm-hmm. There's 18-year-old daughter who's getting married. Yeah, exactly. So, so... Marion looks at this, and it's a moment of madness for her, to be honest. And, and she basically turns around, and, and, and she must be very kind of, um, must be hurtful. You know what I mean? There's a woman in her 30s in a relationship with a man that she knows she can't bring it out in the open. She tells him the hotel room before that, let's get married. And he's like, well, we can't do it yet because I've got all these debts as well. And here's an opportunity to present herself to her to take this money and maybe start a new life. But as, as I was saying, it's, it's kind of hurtful to her. That there's an 18 year old girl whose dad's, who's not only getting married, but whose dad's going to buy a house for her. You know, it's, it's kind of like the life that she probably would have liked to have had. And not only that, the secretary as well is, is made a comment about a scene he, was, he must have been flirting with you. He must have noticed my wedding ring. <laughs> now, it's very funny that she says, Oh, he's flirting with you because he notices I'm married. <laughs> but there again, there's another woman who she works with who's married. So you've got all this kind of stuff going on around Marion, which kind of makes her think that this is a good idea that she's take this money for so and, and run off with it. So Sam um, can can clear his debts, um, get divorced, and they get married and start this new life. Yes, and actually, that's the perfect way. And I never really even realized that. Like you telling me that like she was an orphan, her sister was an orphan, and that explains why their relationship is so close and why she would even get that way. Like she probably never had any kind of financial stability like this is probably the most financially stable she is but her personal life isn't even compared to her you know her career and you know maybe her career she doesn't make that much money but for her to be going now like willing to risk it all for the possibility of happiness is i I never really even thought about it like that i always kind of just thought it was i always kind of had like mixed feelings on her because by the time she's in the car and she leaves like after getting pulled over and she's probably going to get away with it um I always just kind of had this feeling like she kind of did something a little bit dirty and I never understood like like what her motivations were exactly but you've kind of opened my eyes to that like now like I understand what would push her cuz she does kind of get cold feet she was going to bring the money back sense of clarity almost Yeah and that's I actually said it earlier I didn't mean to say it as a pun about her a moment of madness and the clarity comes there when she has this conversation with Norman which is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie oh, is when that. Norman invites her in the back of the parlor they're having the sandwiches and uh, the dialogue back and forward. And I always feel as if there's that at first. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel as if there's an attraction there, which is really weird. I think they are kind of attracted to each other. First of all, like when we look back on Norman Bates in hindsight, we kind of look at him like as like kind of a creep. But really, the way Anthony Perkins plays him uh, is unbelievable. He's just so charming. It, it might be uh, nicer warmer in the office like sam is a nice guy from what we see but he is married mm-hmm. he's still kind of trying to get away from the marriage that he's in and he's not fully committing yet to marion so for this guy like he's a very nice he's like oh why don't you come inside and i'll cook you something i'll give you some dinner like just really like nurturing her something that she's not used to getting and it's coming from a guy who does seem genuine and i believe in his yeah. mind he is being genuine he just doesn't know how to control himself yeah, and the thing is about Anthony Perkins is that Norman Bates in the book is nothing like Anthony Perkins. 
because Norman Bates in the book, he's 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 small, he's fat, he's bald, and he's you know he's he's uh, not a very handsome guy. Whereas like Anthony Perkins, we all think of Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, this creepy you know guy who runs a hotel. But back then, he was actually a leading man, and he was in a lot of like romantic type of movies and things like that. So again, tricking the audience to think of where is this going, and then she realizes herself that this man is in a bigger trap than what she's in. And that's what you're saying about the sense of clarity. And that's what I was saying earlier about the pun. He actually says about his mother goes a bit mad sometimes, um, haven't you? Yeah. And then it dawns on her. She's like, yes, um, I've made a mistake here. <laughs> she's thinking. And the ironic thing is, is that as I know what gets me about this movie, John, is that the ironic thing is, is that she's, she didn't have to steal the money. She, she didn't have to drive all that way. When, when she has this moment of clarity, there's a this train of thought that she gets in the shower. That's a cleansing moment for her. I say it's not too late for her to go back and give the money and iron everything out. Then she's murdered in the shower, and it's just such a it's such a sad sad thing is that she done something that she didn't have to do, and because she done that, you know, she ended up with worse consequences than than stealing. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to justify her being killed in the shower, by the way, because there is this kind of thing that oh she done something bad, so she deserves to be punished. But it's more kind of like. There's this ironic the need twist twist to it. This ironic feeling that it makes you know me, she was just about to get away. She was just about to go back. It makes me wonder if like the censors like because we were talking about like because you know the they had a code at the time. I'm sure you know the the movie code of what things they're allowed to show and what they're not allowed to show. Also like certain morals are not allowed to be broken in these kinds of movies. It makes me wonder if like. This was him just floating that line, Alfred Hitchcock, as much as he possibly could. Like, this is like how he can justify killing her, is saying, "Well, look, she's a thief." Like, not to us, mm. but to like the censors, uh, in yeah. a sense, like or the MPA when they're rating these movies. Like, obviously, I don't, this is before that, but I'm just like saying, like, it's impossible that she was. You know, they showed her doing bad things, and that's the only way we can justify her dying. Same thing with Norman Bates. You know, we gotta make sure that there's a happy ending to these movies, and it's not the happy ending, but at least like the bad guy got caught. He get caught. Yeah. Yeah. Like we had to Good have enough, those. I didn't think about it like that. I was just always thought of it like that's like why he would do that, like make sure to show her. But then, like right, because you said it, like, she's not a bad person, and you could just see how everybody else reacts to her doing this. Like they don't believe that was in yeah. her. Like every even her boss is like, oh, it must have been some kind of mistake. She'd never seem like this kind of person. Like when Sam and her sister get there, they're like defending her like every which way. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. She's not that kind of person. So when you said like. Maybe she had a little bit of madness. Like maybe she just had that moment of where she lost it. She saw her possible way out to like her her chance at a good life, and unfortunately, it was too little, too late. That's why you said like it, it's tragic. It is what happens to her. Yeah, tragic's the right word, probably. But I should have been yeah. looking for it. Think of it though. It is tragic, and the funny thing is as well. You said about she was just doing this bad thing as well. But when you see, which is driving the car, just driving cross country, and she's thinking about what people may are going to be saying about her about taking the money and wouldn't believe she would do it with all this here but there's a part of her as well towards the end as she's approaching the motel where she smiles into the camera when she's thinking about um i can't remember the exact line it was said but when she's thinking about the the oil tycoon yeah about, about, about how much it's going to annoy him and there's this wee grin on her face as if you know it's almost like she's saying you you deserve it he deserves it you know, because he talks about it at the start as well, about, you know, I can't buy happiness, but I can die off on happiness. You yeah. know, and it's almost like she, she's uh, reveling and stealing this money on him as if, you know, 
high on hobbies are you going to be? You know, his daughter won't be able to get the house. And They definitely set that guy up to be just a terrible, terrible person to everybody else but himself, which is good. And that's what makes us kind of root for her a little bit more is because, yeah, she robbed somebody who probably didn't deserve to have that money. I mean, we're talking about class in the 19, in 1960s, something we're still talking about, you know, 63 years later now. And that just shows the genius Alfred Hitchcock, too, is that he was ahead of his time. Imagine the movies, like, you said this to me, like, when we were having, like, private conversations and, uh, about Psycho 2 and Psycho 3, and, like, you said if Alfred Hitchcock could, he would have definitely put some sleaze in his movies in the 1950s and 60s, but it couldn't work in the studio system, and he had a long-running relationship with the studio system. I think Paramount, right? Or CBS, which I think yeah, is... Yeah, Par- Par- Universal, Universal Studios, actually... Mm. Universal was his main studio. He had a Shelley going all there. Um, okay. And I believe that it was actually... Um, see, the problem with this film was because it was so sleazy and violent and creepy, <laughs> before it was even made, before he even shot a scene, nobody wanted to make it. Which I... He put up his own money to make this movie, and he filmed it on Universal Studios' backlot, but I'm near sure it was Paramount that distributed it. But now Universal won it again, so I'm not sure what happened there. I'm sure that they probably were worried that this was going to be a little too, like, pushing it a little too far. Um, was yeah. it this movie where Alfred Hitchcock said that if you weren't there for the beginning, you couldn't uh, see the movie? I, I don't, yeah, that's right. Right? Because like, because of the, the twist, because Marion gets killed halfway through the movie, he didn't want people coming in and going, where is she? Um, uh, I, I'm ruining the, the, the shock moment, but he's seen as the biggest shock moment of her being killed. But what you were saying there about the, the sleaziness and, and, the, and the boundaries and things... Just talking about the oil tycoon as well. I mean, stuff had to be cut out of this this movie, and I, I have the uncut version. I think most people do. I think it's actually on that old box set as well. Yeah, you can um, watch the uh, you can watch both. You got the theatrical and the uncut. I don't think this bit of dialogue is even in the uncut version. So I think it was in the remake. Funny enough, the, the Gus Van Sant remake is at the start when Marion comes in and says that um, I'm going to take a half day. I've got a headache. Um, the manager or manager says just go on. And I think that like, I could say something on the angel. If you need a weekend in Las Vegas, he's trying to seduce her. But she says, uh, no, I'm going to spend this weekend in bed. And when she closes the door, the oil tycoon turns around and says, the second biggest playground in the world. <laughs> something like that. Because cause he, he says Las Vegas is the first biggest playground in the world. And she closes the door with the bed. He says, oh, the second biggest playground in the world. So he's being sleazy and making kind of like a sexual reference yeah. as well. And also, um, one of the things you're talking about, Alfred Hitchcock as well, the genius Alfred Hitchcock, and people might think you look too much into these things, but filmmakers actually take these things into consideration. So when you see Marion at the start, in the bed with Sam, she's wearing a white bra, and when she decides to steal the money, she's wearing a black bra. And that's actually deliberate on the part of Alfred Hitchcock, you know, white for good good black for bad yep like leading um, into like the westerns at the time oh the white hat or the black hat it's always got to be yeah. black it's always everything's got to be black or white we can't ever <laughs> have the moral gray area where it's like you know some good people do some bad things and vice versa yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly mm. and, and then the, the trim some scenes which is in the version of her kicking the bra off when she's in the hotel room as well so he was pushing all those boundaries too the fact that i mean even that even show a woman having an affair in a hotel room. I'd like, what time was it? 
was during the day. It was like before lunch, right? It was like 11, 12 in the morning. I always thought it was like, I was like, she must have like drove over there fast. They met up quick and then she went back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So so a lot of those kind of morals, moral codes were being broken in, in 1959 and 1960 by Hitchcock. Yeah. It makes you wonder if he wanted like Sam to be like fully married, but they're like, uh, throw in the line where he's getting divorced. So it looks a little less bad, you know? (laughs) Because if he's like See, fully I'm, committed to her, his regular wife, and he's just using, you know, Janelle's Marion as like just a side piece, you know, that, that's a little bit more messed up than actually like I love you. I'm just trying to get out of a situation I'm not happy in anymore. I'm trying to remember the book. I'm near certain it's kind of the same in the book that he is divorced or he's getting divorced and he's not with his wife. Okay, so that's fair. You know, that's a little bit more understandable. Like you know, you can't get divorced right away, so take some time. <laughs> Yeah, but if he was still with his wife, I mean, that makes sense from the point of view of her saying, well, I'll just come and live in your store. And he says, you know, live with me in a storeroom behind a hardware store in Fairvale. We'll have lots of laughs. Tell you what, when I send my ex-wife for alimony, you can lick the stamps. But if he was still with his wife, obviously, he wouldn't want her to come to Fairvale, wouldn't he not? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, I feel like in a more modern movie, like we've seen this in other movies, like movies like Up in the Air, and like where guys are, or women even, are hiding the fact that they're married and they are happily married, but they're using and keeping somebody on the hook just Mm -hmm. for sex. That's it. Like, and you can Mm -hmm. see that being the possibility with Sam, but we know that Sam's getting divorced, so he's not doing that. But it wouldn't be a surprise if, like, that all turned out to be a lie and he basically tricked Janet Lee and just used her. Well, in the TV show, I think they do. I think they do that, and I, I didn't particularly like the TV show. Yeah, I haven't seen Bates Motel. I heard it was good. Uh, you know, I just never got up to it. It's really hard for me to see anybody else playing Anthony Perkins. <laughs> playing, I just Anthony Perkins is Norman Bates to me. I just can't. Un- he's perfect in that role. It he brings the ch- yeah. the certain charm he brings to that role is just so believable. Even in Cycle 2, 3, and even in 4, you get glimpses of that old... And he dies only a couple years after that movie. That's right. So, it, it, it what he brings... And I read a lot up on Anthony Perkins um, for the show. I, I, I was just very fascinated on, like, how his personal life was and how quiet of an individual he was and, you know, his mannerisms they were talking about a lot. It defamed his career. <laughs> you know, he couldn't get away from Norman Bates. And I think by the 80s, he actually decided to embrace it. But, I mean, there was a long time, I mean, 1960 till the 80s, 20 years, that he just couldn't get away from under the shadow of Norman Bates. I mean, he's one of the most famous, uh, the, Norman Bates is one of the most famous movie characters ever. And uh, it's funny, I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit younger than you. So I actually saw Scream before I saw Psycho. So the line where, you know, he's like, uh, we all go a little bit mad sometimes. And then he shoots her mm-hmm. and he's like, Anthony Perkins, Psycho. I always think of that when I hear we all go a little mad sometimes. So uh, Scream pops in my head right away. It's like the movie incepted me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I actually didn't see the original cycle. It must have been around 1998. The reason being was that when I was growing up, like, I mean, I had relatives who would talk about Alfred Hitchcock and stuff like that. Um, older people as well in the family and we went to Florida in 93 and we visited Universal Studios and we got to see the motel and the house from Sable 4. Oh, that's awesome. A class have actually got a photograph of it, of me standing in front of the house. Oh, that's so um, cool. <laughs> with my brother and my dad, yeah, I must actually send you it. And there was actually a show in there as well um, at that particular time. I don't know if you know this, John, or heard of it. They actually done a show where they showed you how they actually, how they actually filmed the shower scene. 
no, I didn't even know about that, but that's really cool. Yeah, so I was 11. My brother was must have been about 10. And my mom and dad were with us, and I remember them saying to us, do you just want to go in to see this, or if you think it'll be too scary, then you don't have to go in. But me hearing something's going to be scary, get me in there. <laughs> <laughs> so we went in, and it was like a theatre, and there was church and a stage, and I remember there was a model of the base motel, and it was lit up lights. They came out, this is just from my memory now, 30 years, I was there 30 years ago. So they came out, and there was two guys, and I think one was dressed up as Norman uh, Bates, I can't remember. They had a woman dressed up as Janet Lee, and they just went through how they actually filmed the scene, and then they showed it on the screen, on the screen, the actual filmed scene. Now, I think you can go on YouTube and look that up. You can actually go on and look it up. So many people filmed it when they were at Universal Studios. But that was kind of my first kind of, I'd always heard about Seiko and things because people, talk, older people in the family would talk about Seiko and Hitchcock and stuff like that and the birds and movies like that. Yeah. Um, so it was always, always like this, like, it's like maybe, I suppose it's like younger people, Jaws, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> the Jaws thing. You know, people were doing the Seiko theme and, but you hadn't seen the movie. To be honest, I, I wasn't allowed to watch the movie at that age. I was too young. And then the Gus, and, and I'm ashamed to say this, the Gus Van Sant remake came out and I went to the cinema and I watched it and I loved it. Uh, <laughs> well, and it must have been the same year. Seiko was on TV on really late one night, and I recorded the sorry the original Seiko. So I recorded and I wa- actually watched the the original, and it just blew the remake out of the water. I mean, I just totally absolutely fell in love with the original movie, despite it being at that time nearly forty years old. I I had I didn't have that happen to me, but I can imagine that happening. I I actually saw the original Psycho. So the original Psycho for me, um, it was one of those movies that when I started getting into horror, I was still really young. I saw it at like nine or ten, but it was one of those movies. It's like if you're in the horror, you have to see Psycho. So I had I saw Psycho really young, but I didn't see because I had already been reading about film and everything. So it took me a long time to see Gus Van Zandt Psycho. But I was like, all right, one of these, so I think like 2012, I finally sat down and I'm like, I'm going to try it. <laughs> and I was like, I just don't understand what the point is. Like, why would you go for a shot for shot remake with different actors? Like, now I got to try and see. And I had already seen plenty of Vince Vaughn. Like, it's 2012, so I've seen pretty much all of his comedies that he's most known for by then. Kimasabi is going to have some flavor. I'm going to choose not to eat with you. We're not going to eat together? No. You know, I've seen Wedding Crashes. I've seen Old School. And now I'm trying to see Vince Vaughn try and play Norman Bates. And I just can't get out of my head that he's trying and he's acting. And that's Vince Vaughn. Yeah. I can't move past it. It's just something with me. It just doesn't click. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing was, was that I, I watched, as I said, seen that before the original, um, just because of circumstance, you know, I, I don't remember... I'd only started really bad VHSs then, you know, I was only in the mid to late teens and um, I'd only just started working. So, you know, I didn't have too many VHSs, I didn't have much money, I didn't have too many VHSs. So it wasn't a case that I was seeking out to watch Sega when I seen, I always wanted to watch it. And it was never on TV or anything, even when it did come on that TV that year, it was on really late at night. I had to set the, the VCR oh, yeah. come on. I remember doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember doing that. I did that for, um, you remember the Nickelodeon show Rugrats? Yes. <laughs> well, I remember setting the VCR to record uh, 
it was on a Sunday and I was at my dad's house and I, my mom's like, I'll set the VCR and record the marathon for you so you can watch it when you get home. And I watched like, tw- like 12 episodes of Rugrats on VHS like that when I got home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I remember having, that was like on the early hours and, uh, and setting it, the recorded. So I had just seen the Gus Van Sant one out of circumstance. So I didn't know what the original was like. And then a year later, I just got, a couple of years later, I just got the DVD, my DVD player. Uh-huh. And I remember asking for Sego on DVD. My parents get me Sego from my birthday. It was my birthday. Buy me for my birthday. And I says, uh, make sure it's that the remake of the original. My yeah. birthday, happy birthday. It was the bloody remake. Uh, <laughs> no, so I, I just still got it. Where is it? I've, I've kept it. Well, hey, at least you got some use out of it. <laughs> but then I had to go and buy the original by myself. I was like, I definitely have to go and buy the original because when I watch the original, it's as you said, it's not a patch on the remake. And even now, when I watch Seiko or even the sequels, I never watch that. I mean, there's no reason to even watch it. <laughs> no, you almost that's kind of it's almost like just a rite of passage where it's like you got to see it once at least and see what it is. And then it's just like mind blowing that it's just the same exact movie, and it just and it's not as effective. It really isn't, especially seeing it in color. It just doesn't work as well. Like uh, me and you have talked about this, but I know we stand in the same place. Like black and white, it's not just there to uh, because to save money. It's also an artistic choice. And like we, I, the Mist came out on 4K this week, and I I watched the black and white version. I split it actually. I watched half in color, half in black and white to compare it, and it's just night and day. The black and white is so much better. And well, uh, according to Hitchcock, the reason he done this in black and white originally was because it was going to be too gory. Uh, that was his way of getting around that problem. Was doing black and white. It's not you know it won't be as gory. Um, but then as as you say about cost, that also then helped the cost of the movie because he had to finance it himself. And he actually used his television crew that worked on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I was filament. wondering that. So it wasn't even a movie crew. Yeah. It looks like that, honestly. It looks like it's Alfred Hitchcock Presents. <laughs> yeah, and I think at one stage, they were actually considering making it a two-part episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, where it would end when she get killed in the shower, and the second part would be where it picks up after that, and and um, you can see that in the in the movie kind of in a lot of ways that it is two parts. It makes sense, honestly. It, it really did. Once she dies, the movie totally does a one eighty. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we have callbacks with Sam and her sister showing up, but like you know, we don't really get any references to like what happens with the money anymore. It's not a big deal anymore. The money is no. like you know. It, it was a MacGuffin for the first act, but that was really what was building the tension. I mean, they spend a lot of time in the first half of this movie just with her driving. The, like, the scene with the cop, like, that goes on for a good amount of time. Her buying the used car. Like, all that stuff takes some time, and it's not very memorable. It never gets really brought up when they talk about the movie is that whole sequence of her being on the run from the cop, for, essentially, and being worried and building that tension and anxiety yes. for us. They don't bring that up as much like they always bring up every, the second half of the movie with Norman Bates and being at the Bates Motel. You're right. It is. It's all about building the tension and suspense. It's. I think it's designed to throw you. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's kind of like like Robert Rodriguez done it years later with from Dust to Dawn. Yes. You know that that's totally where he got that from. Other movies have done, it. but I think the the I would say the closest the, the cycle. But what I mean is is that. The fact that he took a half a movie 
telling this story about two criminals on the run and taking people hostage and halfway through all of a sudden they go into a bar and they all turn into vampires nobody's seen that coming now it's um, a full 180 <laughs> yeah and that's what that whole purpose to me is for the first half of that movie you read the money it's a MacGuffin it's not about the money you know the money's irrelevant and that's the whole point at the end when the psychiatrist and they ask somebody asks for what happened to forty thousand dollars and he says uh uh the swamp got that this was crimes of Python, not profit so so the money does it it's not about the money that's not important to the story but it's there as kind of it's just a MacGuffin. it's just there for yes. a reason to like for her to justify why she got to the bates motel motel to begin with all the things that led her to that point I also just want to point out a quick shot. I just love when she's pulling up to the Bates Motel and it's raining out and you see the sign and neon. That black and white is... I love that. That's one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. Um, It's simple, but it's very effective. Yeah, and the music as well. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, the score to this movie. (laughs) I mean, it's one of the most famous stingers ever when the shower curtains and he goes... It's one of the most famous things in film history, probably. As a fact, it was the shower scene is probably very graphic and very disturbing for the time. The one that always gets me bought is when Arbogast is killed. Oh, yeah. Uh, That one is actually, I don't know how they filmed that. That's very fascinating to me, like how he goes down the stairs, like backward. Oh, my God. That one always gets me. As far as as I know, it's, um, he's taking a crane, but like a bucket chair. Oh. Okay, I could see that. I'm not sure if it was filmed on the set or that's Rear Projection. Yeah, well, whatever they Maybe did. Maybe Rear Projection. Rear Projection would make sense, too. Yeah. But they. But it's just how the camera's actually just above the set. And you can see him coming up the steps. Yeah. And then the way Mother just comes around the corner <laughs> of the bedroom. It's just really. It's scary. scary. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, and then we go to the music. You know what I mean? Start the shooting during the corner, and um, yeah, after that, kind of makes me jump. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a little bit scary how that worked out. And honestly, a lot of first person sequel, a lot of the ways that Alfred Hitchcock uses the camera in this movie is impressive for 1960. It must have been a lot harder than like we take that stuff for granted now. Like you see a lot of times where they put the way they put cameras in places now, but we didn't even get the steady cam until 1980. So imagine what they had to do here yeah. in 1960 and filming in 1959. And, and especially, I talk about that camera being above like that. Yeah, he does the exact same shot later in the movie. You know, after that, yes. But what he actually does is, if I can remember correctly, here the camera follows Anthony Perkins up the stairs and 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 drifts up and spins round. And ends on that same angle that he had when Arbogast was killed, and that's when Norman's talking to mother. And I, this is one of the funniest parts in the movie for me, where he says that no, they came for him. They came from the girl. Now they're going to come for him. I'll have to put you down in the fruit cellar. And he's like, "You're not putting me in the fruit cellar. Do you think I'm fruity?" <laughs> and then he says, "Come now, mother. Uh, I'll carry you." And she says, and you hear her saying, put me down. I can walk myself. He said, when you see him carrying her down the stairs. <laughs> what was going on in his head at that moment? That's the one. Well, that's what I like about, as we briefly talked to you in private messages, about the seagulls. Yeah. For stuff in Seagull 3 that you don't see in Seagull 2. And you don't see in Seagull 1. You hear about it. Yeah. But you actually see it in Seagull 3. And that creeped me out of that, you know. And you see a bit of it in Seagull 4 as well. Like I'm talking to mother. Yeah, mother be- moving. 
Yeah, well, the, my biggest Did flaw. Yeah, even though so you can't see him, but he's seeing my biggest flaw with Psycho Four is, is that I just can't see that person being his mother. That's the only. That's my the actress that they have. The I get it. It's a TV movie, and you're not gonna go for you know the complete authenticity, but it just feels like the movie is supposed to take place in the in the 1950s or the early 1950s, but it still looks like 1990. She doesn't look like she's going to turn into that woman. It just I just have a really hard time buying it. But it does have certain aspects that do actually fill some gaps that I appreciated. Yeah, I think that made up for that by Norman says the start of that movie that she grew old in my mind. Mm. You know? Yep. Listen, the fourth one to me has some merit. There's the same writer from Sago 1 wrote Sago 4. Which I thought I think was he cool. disregarded Sago 2 and 3 when he wrote it. Because he says he didn't like him. Everything, a lot of stuff in that movie is referenced in the original sequel. So I'm, I suppose if you're, I'm gonna say it's really weird, but you know what I mean? It's like they suggest that incestuous kind of relationship, you know. So I suppose they couldn't have made his mother an old hag. That is true, I guess. But you know, you're right. They do kind of explain it. She grew old in my mind. I guess. You know, it just felt like she was a young mother because Henry Thomas plays the young Norman Bates in that movie. And I love Henry Thomas, but he's bad in that movie. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, their age gap isn't that much. And I guess it's kind of believable that maybe, he, um, you know, she's not that much older than him. You know, obviously in 1960, it's going to be you're going to assume that his mother is an older lady just by assumption of the times. So I guess that you know we can fill that gap and say oh, she was a younger lady. It's just the voice, like it just doesn't match up to me. But I guess they can explain it away like that. Well, I think he was eighteen in that movie. She must have been near forty, but she about him. She mid thirties, late four or mid thirties. Yeah, she maybe forty. She looks very young. I mean, I guess she could have had him at like nineteen, twenty. Well, she was sixteen. She was in Romeo and Juliet back in the mid sixties. Okay, so she was. All right, so she's probably aged. She just maybe she just aged very gracefully. <laughs> she just looked very probably. She just yeah. looked pretty young. I mean, obviously, you have the scenes in that movie when they're laying in bed together to set up, like you said, that uh, like they had a sexual relationship, which would turn um, somebody into this. So that would definitely put yeah. some lasting scars if your mother was sleeping with you. So you can understand yeah. why he would have a split personality disorder. Well, the thing is about Sago is that it's one of my favorite films. It, it's my favorite horror movie. And the first few times I've seen it, it's scary. But then it becomes like a comedy. And I don't mean that in a kind of bad way. Um, Alfred Hitchcock himself, I think, described it as a black comedy. He says he didn't see it as a horror movie. And he's right. Because when you watch it, you hear how Norman references his mother and the things that go on. Like, for example, I just said there about he's having a conversation, obviously, with himself about his, de- his dead mother, and she's saying, Put me down, I can walk myself. <laughs> yeah, that's. And things like that. You put me in the fruit cellar before, boy, and you're not going to do it again. And he's like, Now come, mother. He <laughs> carries her down anyway. All the, it's, it's just, and even the wee things when he says the marring at the start when they're in the parlor. You know, I, I carried urns for my mother. Now, you, you know, she's dead. It's like, what, you what urns do you do for your mother? I just find all that funny now. And the best thing about it is, usually when you watch a movie with a twist, once you know the twist of a, of a movie, it's hard to watch it again. Very hard. Because you know the twist. But with this, even with the twist, to me, you can watch it again and again and again. Even though you know what's coming, you know the end, and you know she's dead, and it's just the way Hitchcock sets it up. Oh, yeah. There's just such... Exactly. First of all, it's structured so well, shot so well. And then on top of that, I just really think Anthony Perkins gives 
a world-class performance in this movie. I want to watch him play Norman Bates. Like, I love it. Like, I know you're a big fan of the, of the sequels, and I just think he gives another great performance in Psycho 2 as well. This movie just wouldn't work as well if somebody else is playing Norman Bates. He's just that good, and yeah, I think he gets a little bit... I mean, I guess he's very appreciated for it, but when you talk about horror movie performances, we kind of got lost in the 80s where there was a lot of bad acting, which I love because, you know, 80s act, uh, movies yeah. are the best. But he gives a great acting performance in this movie and yeah. in the other ones. Yeah, but without a doubt, and I think we, we talked about this um, when you got the box set, the Arrow box set, and we were messaging about the box sets, and I was saying to you about Sable 2. The whole idea of making a sequel to Sago in the late 70s, early 80s was ludicrous because I don't think anybody expected that you could make a sequel to one of the greatest films of all time, one of the greatest horror movies of all time, especially 20 years after the fact. Now, we're in an era now where they're making sequels to movies like about the 80s and it's became commonplace now. They call them legacy sequels. Yeah. <laughs> It's this one a, did it first. <laughs> Psycho was the yeah, first. <laughs> exactly. This one done it 40 years ago. Yeah. And um, originally, it, it was going to be a TV movie, and they wanted Christopher Walken. I guess I could see that for the time, like around the Dead Zone time and everything like that. I guess this was more of like when he was a serious actor before he started to become like almost like a satire of himself. <laughs> yeah. A caricature of himself. Yeah. Normally, plants don't have eyes, so it's hard for me to trust them. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, but I think the reason they were thinking Christopher Walken was because they thought themselves Anthony Perkins wouldn't be interested. But once, I don't know when they approached him, but once he showed interest, Universal then changed the dates. This isn't going to be a TV movie. It's going to be a, a motion picture. It's going to be in the cinemas. So that was how it kind of started again. Yeah. And I, we've talked about Psycho 2. Psycho 2, for people who haven't seen it, really has a stacked people. The amount of people working on that movie who would end up being even bigger, like Tom Holland, who people know directed the first Child's Play. I think you told me this was his first screenplay. Jerry Goldsmith does Thanks the score so. on it. Uh, Robert Franklin directed mm -hmm. it. Like a lot of good people were involved in making that movie. And it really shouldn't be tossed aside as just a regular 80s slasher because it's not. It's actually a really good psychological thriller. Obviously, the problem is, is Psycho casts the most massive shadow over it that almost people kind of, even to this day, if you hear people talking about Psycho, they never bring up the sequels. Yeah, listen, I was the same. Funny enough, I was probably a wee bit more of a movie snob to a certain extent when I first... Um, just watch Seagull uh, uh, because I watched the sequels to like Neighbor and Elm Street films and some of them kind of ruined it for me and uh, I was staying away from Seagull 2 and Seagull 3 I I'd watched actually Seagull 4 but I was staying away from Seagull 3 and it was actually my mum said to me says me no you should watch them sequels because they're really good and I bit the ball and I watched them and I'm glad I did because I really enjoy Seagull 2 and I especially enjoy Seagull 3 and I know that a lot of people see like the first three I know a lot of people see three as the weakest but I don't know. I really, really like Sego 3. I look at Sego 2, um, a means to an end. You know, it, it's to get me to Sego 3. It's to explain how is Norman back and how, why is he crazy in you. Yeah, it's definitely, you have to see Psycho 2 to get to Psycho 3. I like aspects of Psycho 3 more than Psycho 2. I just think Psycho 2, uh, like like you said, like I think we all go through that film snob phase where we all think that we just know film better than us and we kind of ignore the trashy stuff just because it's like it makes us, as film fans, we want to like be like very highbrow. But then you're like, 
well, that's just stupid of me. I'm depriving myself of something I enjoy. And it's really dumb exactly. to do that because Psycho 3 is a great movie. It's not, I don't like it as much as Psycho 2, but it is a lot of fun. And yeah. it feels very much of the 1980s. And I just really appreciate that, especially uh, the character of Duke. <laughs> <laughs> Main the guitar. Yeah. With those denim yeah. Audis wearing, his mullet, you know, just so much of the 1980s. <laughs> It's brilliant. That's what I'm saying. It's like you're saying you're depraving yourself. In later years, I haven't gone to watch the legs of like all the Freddy. Well, all, say all the Freddy of things. I still haven't watched Jason Goes to Hell and Jason X. Although I'm trying to get them, it's been difficult to get them. I can't really get them over here for some reason. Um, they're very but hard. Like, to I went back and watched all the Freddy of Thirteens and watched all the Name and Elm Streets again. And, and as a horror fan, I want to watch them again and again. I don't want to have them in the collection, even Freddy's Dead. And, you know, Although I'm a, a, a guilty pleasure for uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. I, I, I know you. a lot of people like Jason Takes Manhattan. I, I like to call it Jason Takes a Ferry to New Jersey, from New Jersey to Manhattan, because I don't know how the hell yeah. he got out of Crystal Lake. There is no outlet there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And he didn't even go to Manhattan. It was Toronto uh, or something. It was uh, Canada that was filmed in or something. Yeah, it was filmed in Alberta. They did the same thing with Scream 6. It's never filmed in yeah. New York. They've always filmed it in Canada. <laughs> Though I do love this shot. I don't, is it the end of the start? At the start, it shows you Times Square, and you can see the big Batman symbol because it was filmed in 1989. They're advertising Batman. Yeah, and actually, that's yeah, my favorite part. The end that pans up at uh, Times Square, and it's just classic. Yeah, and I also love the old Coca-Cola logo that they had in Times Square. Times Square just doesn't look like that anymore. It, it, you know, it, back yeah. then you just couldn't replace that, and it does. And I think they had the was did they have a Glenn Fry song as the opening to that one too? I think it was a Glenn Fry song. There's a song of it. I don't know who sings it. It's called um, "Dark Side of the Night." I always get it mixed up with the heat is on, which is another song he did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, exactly. That's what it was for. <laughs> yeah. Psycho 3, one thing they show you that we don't get to actually see in the other movies is we get to see people actually at the motel, at buying mm -hmm. rooms because they have, what is it, some kind of college football game is going on? So that's whatever. Yeah. Everyone's in town for that, so we get a bunch of drunks and teens, and this is where it's like, it's 1980s, so we gotta ha build up some real shitty teenagers and have them all killed off. <laughs> and it's so sleazy. Oh, like, the whole thing is so sleazy. I, I just, I don't know, I know I'm gonna say about here, but I love it, it's brilliant. It's, what I love about the third one is how it's shot, how it looks, the colors that Anthony Perkins uses in that movie. Along with the score, the score as well. I really love that score in the third movie, and it would have been so easy. Even the score in Saving Cruz amazing as well. Oh, it's great. It would have been so easy for them just to pick Bernard Herrmann's score and play it over it. To me, they bring something fresh to every, those, those first two sequels to those movies, which make me want to go back and watch them again. Um, it's not the same, to me, it's not the same thing being done over again. And I understand a lot of people see there's more similarity than maybe Sago 3 uh, to Sago 1 than there is in Sago 2 to Sago 1. Even though Sego 2 does have a lot of homages, but Sego 3 to me, it, it's Anthony Perkins paying homage to, to Sego and a lot of things he does. But as I was saying about it, so easy. It's like, why are all these women attracted to Norman Bates for? I just don't get it. No, they love him. I mean, that nun. I mean, I get her a little bit because she was in, you know, she was a member of the cloth. She hadn't had sex probably ever, right? So, but Norman's yeah. a good guy and she just literally met 
one of the worst people ever. The first guy she meets coming out of this tries to rape her. So, of course, yeah. she's already got a bad taste in her mouth. And Norman seems like a real friendly, nice guy. Of course, he's got, you know, the world's biggest secret hidden. <laughs> but Yeah. Which I do, you know, you kind of do sympathize with him in Psycho 2 and 3. Like, you see him trying to fight it, and people just... They don't stop. They don't yeah. stop. They don't leave him alone. Given probably shouldn't have got out of jail or out of the mental institution into. I mean, that's to make a sequel. But even if he did, it's like if they cleared him, like uh, maybe give him a shot and don't tempt him if he's got something wrong. <laughs> but of course, Mister Toomey was. Well, he, he's the making a successful business out of it. He did. He did a good job. But you know what? Honestly, it would it easily could have gone under with him being gone and all the murders happened there. So. You really had no other way to, other than to turn it into basically a drug motel and, uh, you know, for prostitution and everything. He had no options to, if he wanted the business to stay open. You know, immediately. motel? Yeah. And immediately after he fires Toomey, it becomes a ghost town again. <laughs> <laughs> Norman just doesn't know when he was on a good thing. No, he didn't read. He didn't have hope for it. He didn't know. Well, you know, he's been in since 1960. He doesn't know how the 80s are. <laughs> <laughs> But that's what I was saying, like about the, the women, but even in the third one, was there not a woman? Remember when he goes, she goes to the ice machine, the ice bucket yeah. or whatever, or freezer, and she offers him back to the room. Yeah, she's basically like throwing himself at him. And then she, I think she's the one that ends up in the ice yes. bucket the ice thing. And then, um, do you remember when the cop takes the ice out with the blood on it? He eats it. Yeah, that was re actually, and that's the thing in th the third one. That's the one where she's like on the toilet and like that's where she gets murdered and everything. Like, they it's very 1980s, the third movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, and even David Drake when he picks that girl up from the bar and brings her back. Oh, my God. And he just then throws her out. <laughs> I know, he's just throwing it all because, uh, what was it? She just wanted to hang out with him. She's like, no, he's throwing her. It's like. <laughs> He's like, here's cab fare. Go call a cab. <laughs> yeah. Send yeah, it to the paper. Work on it yeah. Why don't you get out of here? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, like that's his job. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's supposed to be taking care of this motel, and he just from the very beginning he almost robs the place. <laughs> wow, yeah, man. that's right. I think that's pretty. Than Norman says to him, uh, "Why don't you come in the parlor and we'll talk about it?" And he even says to him, "Sit the spader to the flag." Yeah, and Norman's like, "Wow," and he's like, "No." Nothing. He wouldn't get that. He's like, oh, you'd get that. <laughs> I know that's yeah. one word that they throw around a lot that is just gone completely. I don't know if they still do it where you live, but calling like a back room like that a parlor, because even in uh, the second one, Robert Loge is like, I'm calling you from the uh, from the parlor at the hotel. And I'm like, man, how many people have thrown that word around? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think I've never heard anybody call a room a parlor. I've heard people call is ice cream parlors, but yeah, <laughs> I've heard ice cream parlors, but I've never heard like them say like, "Oh, I got a parlor in the back." Like I've just <laughs> never in a, in a conversation that I've ever had with anybody. <laughs> I'm actually gonna start using that. I'm gonna bring it back. Yeah, bring it back. back. I'm gonna start calling it the parlor. <laughs> yeah. Come on, the parlor with me. And I was gonna be like, "What are you gonna? What is a parlor? And why are you bringing me back there?" <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but. One thing I got to ask you before we do end up ending the show is what are your thoughts on the ending? Because I've watched many podcasts or listened to podcasts and sh movies and shows and said that they don't like that. They basically just exposition dump you at the end of this movie. Uh, I think it's of the time. Like, I don't think people in 1960, I think they wanted the answers to all the questions given to them. I don't think they would do it now, but what do you think of it? Well, this is again, this is the occasion where I've been watching this movies for the last 25 years. Um, 
it never bothered me until like Ian John as we talked on our podcasts. It's like you come on the internet and then you see people starting to criticize the scene. It doesn't bother me. I think I think it needed a bit of an explanation because I'll be honest with you, I've seen a lot of things online about Norman and Seiko and um, they're wrong about his character. And I think it's it's plain and simple. So I want to say it's plain and simple. What I'm saying is that it does, I have no issue with it being in the movie. I don't think it kind of over-explains anything. I don't think it treats the audience like idiots. I, I do think it needs explained about what's going on. Um, and even, even funny enough, like the guy that wrote it, when I watched the making of it, and this making us about 20 years old or whatever, but when he, he was actually saying that when they were pushing the boundaries of, of the censors, like, for example, showing a corded for the first time, and not only that, showing an open corded and showing a corded on a flush, yeah. and um, Hitchcock had said to him, like, we're going to have problems with the censors, they're not going to show this, and Joseph Stone was saying, well, I think it's important to have it in the movie. I can't remember why it's important to have a flush and corded in the movie. I think it's just to show you her, the, 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 the notes you wrote, and then that's a clue later on. Yeah, but it was Hitchcock that said to him, "Well, you, you, you're gonna the one's gonna have to go to the censors and fight for it." And just thought, "Well, okay, well, I'll do that." So he's the one that had to go with Hitchcock. He actually said one of the biggest issues that they had with the movie was the word transvestite. Really? Well, I guess it's 1960. Mm-hmm. So uh, they didn't want that in the movie. But when you think about it, like this is the thing to me, Norman Bates. He's not a transvestite. He's not gay either. No, he's, and he's got split personality disorder. Is what he yeah, got. and and that's why that's why I'm saying. Even though I have seen like, people saying that you know he was gay, he was this, he was that, and I just got myself no, he wasn't. He he was a split personality, and that's why the psychiatrist explains it. The psychiatrist says that he committed matricide, and that's one of the hardest things for a son to get over. And the only way that he could deal with it was to dress up as his mother, was to talk for his mother, was to keep the illusion that his mother was alive. So the only reason he put the dress on was to keep the illusion that she was alive. And and not only that, when he did murder his mother, and it explains this even in the book, he blacks out. He doesn't know he's done it. He thinks that his mother's done it. And he wakes up and cleans the murder scene up uh, to protect her. And even the psychiatrist explains that in the movie. He explains that he was insanely jealous of his mother, so he assumed that his mother was insanely jealous of him, which is why he also explains that he was attracted to Marion Crane, and that set mother off. And I, that's the thing. I don't think people would realize that, but that wasn't in it. I'm sorry, I really don't. I have no problem with the ending myself. I actually, because I saw this movie a little bit younger than I probably should have, that actually taught me a little bit about split personality disorder, and then eventually when you... Because this is, this does get used a lot in horror movies, especially after this. It's like, oh, split personality disorder is what is the cause of all this but you do understand why a person like you just said who killed their mother why the only way to consciously deal with that is to create a different personality because how do you live with the weight of that on yourself and Mm -hmm. the only way is to like completely remove yourself from it and just trick Mm -hmm. your and you can do that people have been proven to do that trick their own mind but i think also in 1960 you do need to explain that to the audience i don't know how many people are even aware especially mental disorders or illnesses anyway at the time were not taken seriously so yeah the audience needed that i think that to have that there for them i think they needed to have it fully explained to them i get it in 2023 you wouldn't slap that on you know we can read between the lines but 63 years ago 
someone had to be the first to explain this to a general audience. So I think it's necessary, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it is. And it's part of the movie, and it does really bother me. And I think it's done. I've seen people say, you know, it's too long, or it's boring, or I don't think it is. I like the way it's done. You know, when he says to the, this sister says that, did he kill my sister? And she says, he says, yes and no. I <laughs> think... <laughs> Uh, just, it's like, a little more complicated to... than that. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, are you trying to make a case for this guy? And he's like, no. And she's like, well, the sister's dead. And he's like, yes. <laughs> well, and of course, the end, and then when they come in and they say, he's feeling a little chill, coming from the blanket. That seems absolutely amazing. Yes, I love that. That monologue at the end mm-hmm. about the fly, just slowly panning in on him. Oh, his that... face. Yeah, like you'd have to remove that from the ending too. Like I don't think people real. I love that aspect of the end of the film where she's talking to him in his brain, but it's just him talking to himself. And his mother's blaming him for everything in his mind. Yeah, he doesn't. He was bad. He was always bad. I should have locked him up. She in the end, he, he wanted. They wanted to. Um, he wanted them to think that I killed those girls, but at the same time, he still killed his mother and her lover. So yeah. he did murder people. He still, you know, technically- even though he did literally kill the girls, but in his mind, his, his mother did it. So, I mean, this the look into the camera is the same look which Janet Lee gives in the car. Exactly that little smirk on her face. It's perfect, and uh, and then you see the skull. Like that's the perfect way. And I mean, we didn't talk about the, the reveal of the mother with the swinging light. I love that shot, by the way. That's another one where it's lit so perfectly to reveal that the yeah. dead body's been there, and it's a scary looking dead body. And even before that, I love um, Vera Mage going up the hill. The way the way the camera's just panning back while she's it's during the day too, it's bright day, and the camera's just panning back to see her going up the hill and then and, and then it cuts and it shows you her point of view of what the house looks like, carring up, and it's just all that it's, the suspense is building again, you know, when she goes into the house. And at that stage as an audience member, you don't know you think mother's in the house, you don't know where mother is, you think mother's gonna try and kill her. But obviously when you watch it again, you realise that, you know, while she's in that house, nothing's gonna happen to her. Um, because Norman's down in the motel speaking to the boyfriend and I like when she was in the mother's bedroom and you see just see the imprint on the bed yeah. of the dead body where it's been lying for 10 years you know another thing as well that I wanted to point out which about the movie too did you notice every single character or come say main character you know you, you see the reflection in the mirror and the only person who don't see who reflects in the mirror is uh Anthony Perkins. So Alfred Hitchcock is suggesting everybody's two sides to them. Yeah. But Norman doesn't because, you know, he's he's housing two personalities. Does that make sense? That does make <laughs> sense. And that makes sense why you wouldn't show him. Like, it's those little story beats, and that's what you get Alfred Hitchcock to do, is write a, um, you know, tell this kind of story. And, I, and it was you who told me, and I didn't know this, and it's very fascinating, is um, that you told me he actually hated the shooting more than actually he would storyboard the whole thing and get it like all the pre-production was more important to him than actually shooting it that's what he liked the least and i i just find that so fascinating all the preparation that would have to go into a film like this to actually make it work the way it works just the way it's structured uniquely especially for the time yeah and especially if you're trying to see it as much money as possible i mean i think that um that was part of his motivation was that there was these kind of like uh low budget um, movies coming out at the time, horror movies and stuff as well, and he wanted to prove that he could do this. So obviously, you want to cut down your shooting time, don't you? You want to cut down how much film you're using as well. And then he had to devise a way to shoot a very balanced scene, and he done it in edits and sound. Yeah. Um, because in the book it's a lot more balanced. In the book, he actually cuts her head off, so he couldn't show that. 
No, that would have gone over very badly. (laughs) It's just fascinating. And another thing is is that we're going from Psycho to Psycho 2. They kind of gloss over it, but Sam ends up marrying her sister. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I just, like, they kind of like, oh, Sam died a few years ago. I'm like, how did that happen? Like, <laughs> so she, he was divorcing his wife and sleeping with her. Did Sam go, you know, kind of out of a girl now and you're very beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose if you read between the lines, they could bond over the loss of yes. a loved one. I, I figured um, that's what it was. It was so funny to me and too how they kind of just like kind of glossed over that. I was like, I had to, I actually because I I only seen Cycle Two like I told you a long time ago, so I would have never picked up on that. So when they said that, I was like, is that what I think they're talking about, or did I miss that? Is that a different name? <laughs> I was like, there's no way there's two guys named Sam. Yeah, I, that's right. And I, I actually read the book, the second two, and that was written by Robert Bloxwell. It's basically nothing to do with the movie version because they asked him to write a book a sequel and he wrote it and they didn't like it so they wrote the version but the thing is is that his book as well Leila did marry Sam and they did have uh, did they have a daughter I can't remember I can't remember but uh, because it's years ago uh, since I've read it Um, but yeah they were married even in his version so I don't know if that's where they got it from yeah, I'm not too sure, but that maybe, but that, I always thought that was really funny. And then their daughter, obviously, is their daughter. And uh, in Psycho 2, I always find it. What's her name? Mia Tilly or something like that? The it's Meg Tilly. Meg Tilly, who was also in uh, the, bi- uh, the Big Chill. But I always find it. She's uh, Jennifer Tilly's older sister. It's so funny that yeah. those two float around in horror like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So what a family, guess because uh, she's definitely most known for Psycho too. Then even she's all right in the Big Chill, but nothing special. Yeah, I haven't seen the Big Chill, but uh, uh, apparently she didn't get on too well with Fanny Perkins uh, uh, on the set of, of Psycho too. So actually, I don't ever really hear too many people, uh, at least from what else, not too many people had anything really too negative to say about Anthony Perkins. Just that you know he was kind of, uh, you know, he was very much to himself kind of guy. Like they said, he's very eccentric, but nobody knows what went on with him and Meg Tilly. I think that maybe. They felt he was taking a bit of his, or she was taking a bit of his thunder. This was supposed to be his big comeback, and everybody was saying, "I agree to what she was doing." I mean, she's good in that like movie. Yeah. I thought yeah. she was really good in the movie. To be honest, I thought she was very good in the. Honestly, the acting in Psycho Two is very good all around. And you've got Robert Loggia in there too. I love Robert Loggia. Anytime he pops up with that freaking voice, man, I love Robert Loggia. Always have. He's even good <laughs> on The Sopranos. Uh he's always yeah. There. Uh. He's better than The Sopranos. He's a piece of shit on The Sopranos, but he's great. He, he is, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that scene in The Sopranos where... Uh, in the convertible? <laughs> no, it was... Uh, is it Carmela says to you, Tony, you've, you've, got, you've got no real friends. They're all afraid of you, Tony. That's why they laugh at your, your stupid jokes. And he says, he says, I'm running a business. I'm not trying to be popular. And then he thinks back about the joke he made at the poker game. And everybody's laughing, and the only one that's not laughing is Robert Rosia, and that's when the penny drops with him. Yeah, and he's like, he's like, yeah, they just, yeah, I'm gonna have to get rid of him. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Robert, I thought he was gonna have a bigger part on the show, but he, the little part he does have, it's great. And then obviously in Big, he's awesome. He's really good. I can't remember what's his name in The Sopranos again. Oh my god, I can't. I just know that he was a. I can't remember either. He was a, just a crime guy who got out of prison, and you know he's basically just aged and he's too old now essentially he's just, yeah. he's, he's outdated yeah. he's uh he's too much time in the clink <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so his guys are on paulie's estate yeah they, they take it over and cut in the grass remember paulie hits 
Who's one about a tree? He's cutting the tree and he hits him. He hits him. Is he hitting the shovel or something? Or that's Satan too. That, <laughs> he hits him with the shovel, but when they're having a sit down with Tony, and Tony says, "What happened?" And Paulie says, "He jumped out of the tree with a chainsaw <laughs> and run that me." <laughs> yeah, he was just basically he was trying to get his nephew or something to uh, get the business back, and he's like, "You got to mow their lawn too." He's like, "You come over, you mow my mother's lawn," and he's getting mad that he's not doing it. He wants to charge them. <laughs> he's like, "I've had this set up this whole time. You're coming in and screwing up my business." <laughs> Uh, it's brilliant brilliant show oh it's one of the best um and before we end this podcast i had just have to ask is this your favorite alfred hitchcock film oh yeah without a doubt like john talk about like uh where, where's where's jaws my leggings where's batman uh, sago is actually my second favorite film of all time really so uh, oh yeah 100 oh, percent. absolutely wow. love sago one of my favorites uh, yeah but that may be my, my favorite hitchcock movie yeah, I mean, if it's that high, I I think it's my second or my third. I still put Vertigo at number one. I absolutely love Vertigo. It's one. Yeah, Vertigo's good. Yeah, I I know that it gets put on a hot lot of lists, like really high. It's like maybe sometimes it even gets put as the number one film of all time. But I've always just really enjoyed seeing James Stewart's character in that movie. It's just fascinating to me because you never get to see him. Like it's sometimes it's very rare, but he's always playing like the clean cut white hat wearing guy. I and mean, this is a very flawed individual. And Alfred yeah. Hitchcock just wrote that character perfect. And then. The Technicolor stuff in that movie, just I, I eat that up. I think about the scene with the glowing green light outside the window of the hotel a lot. <laughs> so, you know, that movie, yeah. and then the ending, obviously, is fantastic. Yeah, it's, he becomes a very creepy character in that movie. Yeah, he's a creeper, that's for sure. And they don't outright say it. And, and as you said about that film as well, is um, Anthony Perkins homages that heavily in Sable 3. Exactly. At the start in the bell car, mm-hmm. when the nun falls. Yeah, which is uh, yeah. I I thought the same thing. I was like, that's clearly an an Hitchcock uh, homage at the very beginning of that movie with the nun. And the voices actually sound similar to like when the one nun sees the girl fall in Vertigo, and like her shock is very similar to the shock in Psycho Three. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing here. There's a lot more homages in Psycho Two. Psycho Two, they're like taking camera angles right out of Psycho. Then it's yeah. probably Psycho and uh, Psycho or Rope. I really like Rope a lot. Rope's really good. I, I would have to say Vertigo would probably be my second favorite, but I really like North by Northwest. North by um, Northwest is great too. I, yeah, I, you seem like a you know spy movie. <laughs> Yeah, James Bond movie. Yeah, it's pretty much a James Bond ripoff. Or, well, actually, James Bond, that that was before James Bond, wasn't it? <laughs> I knew that they wanted Hitchcock to direct the first James Bond movie. That would have made sense. And s- he turned it down to direct Sago, I think. 59. Uh, that would make sense, actually. So it was only a year apart. Yeah, you, yeah you're right. That's, oh, I'm, sorry, I'm not saying you're wrong about the year. You looked it up. I'm saying... Yeah, I was looking it up. Jackson, obviously, you're right at that because if you look at For Mercy With Love, <laughs> they took some of the inspiration from north by northwest oh i could see that <laughs> i could see that mm-hmm. north by northwest is a great movie and um that's one of the movies i think that was the first movie i ever saw where they had mount rushmore <laughs> mm-hmm. which is uh very fascinating to me that's over i don't know where that is in america but always find it funny that they shaped a mountain into the president's heads <laughs> <laughs> and you hear people say my it's like What's your main rush? More of horror villains? <laughs> yeah, like it just became its own thing. Yeah, who's your top four of essentially is what it is. And I get that. Mm. I mean, everyone's got to pick if you can narrow it down the four. <laughs> Another one I like is uh, Rear Window. Rear Window is fantastic. I love Rear One of the very rare movies uh, I always put that captured the heat of how hot it is outside. 
Uh, that's yeah. what I love about Rear Window. And it's just, again, Technicolor, so it looks beautiful. And I mean, so many movies have ripped that movie off of like someone spying on their neighbors and thinking yeah. that they're killing The burbs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the burbs totally ripped it off. And what I find most fascinating about that is that whole movie is shot on a soundstage. Look, I'm just thinking about Hitchcock movies now coming to mind. Like, have you seen Shadow of a Doubt? Shadow of a Doubt, I've seen. That one's really good. Um, really like that. They they did a um, remake um, of Rebecca a couple of years ago, which I didn't see, but the original Rebecca is great. That's one I haven't seen. Oh, you would like Rebecca. Um, Notorious. You ever seen Notorious? No. One that I'm embarrassed I haven't seen, and a lot of people always say it's one of his best, is uh, Lifeboat. That's one I really want to see. No, I haven't seen that one either. No. See, I, I got a box set of Hitchcock years ago on DVD. It was about 20 films. They're the ones I've seen, so... Some of the ones I'd say to that I haven't met much. That was the other one. Fre- and part of that box it's Frenzy. Have you seen Frenzy? No, I haven't seen Frenzy. It's it's really hard with Hitchcock. He has he used to have like a movie come out every year. It's hard yeah. to see them all. <laughs> He's like a hundred twenty movies or something. So it's like out of a box out of twenty, you think you've seen a lot. Yeah, they, um, every year they come out with a new 4K collection with like four or five movies in there, and they like barely scratch the surface. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But here, see if you like killing ones like Seiko, Seiko here, like Seiko. I would, I would advise to give Frenzy a watch. I actually think Frenzy is one of his most underrated movies. I think it's overlooked because it came out in theater in his life. It came out like in 1972. Mm-hmm. And I suppose maybe by that stage, movies were kind of moving on you know i think he was maybe still stuck yeah in the past with with the the way he was making his movies you know what i mean about 1973 getting movies like the godfather and yeah, and that's right like that. right you know, around the william french connection and, yes that's what i was gonna say the french connection in a year before this. so you got william freaking and his like documentary style films and like getting completely just the code's gone like we could show whatever the hell we want now like characters that he was like floating that line of like ca- characters in the moral gray area but now it's like no we could show their flaws and we will know that these individuals are flawed people and you know, not yeah. everyone's perfect. Like, we we don't have to give you the happy ending anymore. Yeah, it was coming into the era of the anti-hero. Yes. I think Frenzy was overlooked. I still think, as I'm saying, I, it's a forgotten Hitchcock, a gem, in my opinion. But I think the reason it was committee just didn't do as well as it did at the time, or it's not as well held as in high regard, is because of that period of early 70s cinema where we are getting movies. Like, as I say, the French Connects and then The Godfather and those type of movies, The Exorcist, the movies like that. Yeah, once we get away from the, we don't have to follow the rules of the 50s and 60s anymore, we can actually show you everything. Like, uh, one day I'd want to do the French Connection with you, because I know you like William Friedkin as much as me, but I have a lot to say about like that movie, just in the fe- just the year it came out is incredible, it was that 71, like, it, it, yeah. it's so ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant film, I, I actually haven't seen it in a while, and I've been tempted to, I've got the DVD, I've been tempted to upgrade the Blu-ray, I've had, um, I watched the French Connection two as well many years ago. Um, not a patch on the original, but it's an interesting movie. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. I watched uh, actually one movie. I think you said you really like uh, a couple weeks ago, Sorcerer. Where after William Freakin died, I wanted to watch Sorcerer, yes. and that movie is so underrated too. Oh, that yeah. movie shot beautiful at the very end of the movie. Oh, it's one of those beautiful looking movies, and the fact that they start the movie off without any English for a while. And William Freakin was great, too. I, I, I'm getting very off-topic. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> no, I, I think Sorcerer. I think Sorcerer is one of them type of movies. And I think it's it's the same with a lot of freaking movies. I'm going to contradict myself here. I don't think a movie, you, you should have to watch a movie 10 times before you get it or before you like it. I don't like people that say, 
Well, watch it again. You'll you know watch it again, watch it again. But I just feel as if his movies, the more you watch them, the more invested you get in them. Because he doesn't give you anything. William Freakin doesn't tell you what's going on. All his movies start uh basically cold opens like we're in a story but we don't know what the hell is going on like whether it's in cruising with the police cars and what the cops are doing whether it's in sorcerer mm-hmm. seeing all four of these guys but we don't know who these four guys are and what the hell is yeah. going on with them we have no idea we're just seeing this stuff play out three of them aren't even in english you know uh right. the exorcist they start out in uh was it iraq Iraq, yeah. So, yeah, so we don't know what's going on with uh, Mar- uh, Max von Sydow there. We have no idea. He doesn't even show back up till the third act of the movie. So, <laughs> yeah, like, that's just what. And the same thing with the French Connection. He doesn't give you the answers. Like you got to figure it out for yourself. Yeah. So rewatches of his movies reward you. Yeah, and that's what I love about them. They're just a slow burn. A lot of them. That's mm-hmm. what I like, I like about them. Yeah, you know, they're not loud. They're not in your face. There's no kind of overacting. You know what I mean? They're just. I think a lot of the characters he has in his movies are very kind of down to earth and kind of relatable in a, in a way that they just seem like regular people. Yeah, they exactly. And that, and I think that comes from his documentary filmmaking style is that because that's what he did before he started making, you know, regular films is he was yes. making, and I think that it, he just finds a way to make human beings seem real. Yes, we go to the movies to see, you know, we want to see the big and the grand, but we also want to relate to these people and to see regular people, the anti-hero, like have flaws and see like are you makes you feel better about yourself like you know uh you know okay i can relate i understand i have that same problem <laughs> you have anything else you want to say on psycho before we wrap this up i think i covered everything i think it's better i mean i, I could say it's another one of them ones you could say and i'll think of something and then you talk and i'm talking, talking oh i know like I say, it's one of my favorite movies john i mean I've, I've, um what documentaries on i've read a couple of books on it as well so it's uh it's a fascinating movie. There's a handful of movies that I have watched in my life. When I watch them, they inspire me to love film. I maybe I would love to be able to be make film or, or write, write a film. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a handful of movies out there. I'd say most definitely one of them. Um, the craft in the movie is outstanding. And as I said, I think that Hitchcock was using the tools of the time to tell this story and still pushing boundaries. I think if he was around today and he made Sego, it would be a completely different movie. It would be a completely different movie. And I'm glad that this movie came out when it did because, I mean, yes, he would have made it a completely different film. But having it the way it is right now is still perfect. And it really, it's just, it's yes. a benchmark of horror. It, it took horror into a whole different level. It's the cultural importance of Psycho cannot be understated. It's yeah. still 63 years later. Like you, I think you said it at the beginning of this podcast, and you were 100% right. It's the godfather of horror, and it really is. In my opinion, there's very few perfect movies that have been made, and Sago is one of them. 100%. 10 out of 10, perfect film. And yeah. if you guys haven't seen the sequels, well, you're doing yourself a disservice. There's a really nice Arrow video box set that both me and David have that you can actually check out all the sequels on 4K or Blu-ray. Uh... All of them great scans. Got a review here on the channel. But mm-hmm. uh, me and David will be back next time. And we're going to be doing Poltergeist. We can announce that here. That'll be our next film that we review together. And we will see you guys then. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe. And tell your friends. <laughs>